What's good, family? Welcome to another episode of the Page Turners Podcast. I am your host, Elgin Bailey. Each season, we pick a book, and we walk through that particular book, page by page, line by line, unpacking, revealing, digging deep. This season, we are doing The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. It's a collection of uh, essays that are phenomenal and eye opening, revealing some of the weaknesses, the intent, the origins, and for all intents and purposes, um, a critical lens looking at nonprofits. This is episode number eight for this particular season. Really, really excited about it, man. Um, Super, super dope. This particular episode, we're going to be reading the great Ruth Wilson Gilmore's essay in the shadow of the shadow state. And I read... Organized philanthropy is playing a significant role in this age of tottering social standards, crumbling religious sanctions, perverse race attitudes, and selfish and ulterior motives. Ira Day A. Reed, 1944. Even in today's world, Ira Reed's words still ring true. Descriptive of a scenario many contemporary social justice activists think is unique to our lives. Yet, more than 60 years ago, the dimensions of organized philanthropy's significant role in the African-American community prompted Reed to write an incisive analysis in which he noted two things. First, during a period of about 20 years, both reformists and radical black groups had become increasingly dependent on foundation gifts over membership dues. Second, both donors and recipients acted on assumptions about each other and about the possibility for social change, which, regardless of intent, reinforced the very structures groups had self-organized to dismantle. Pause just for a moment. Ira Reed wrote this analysis in 1944. And I want to read again what was noted, the two things that were noted, because I want you to pay attention to this part right here. First, during a period of about 20 years, both reformists and radical black groups had become increasingly dependent on foundation gifts over membership dues. That's still happening today. The second point that she made. Both donors and recipients acted on assumptions about each other and about the possibility for social change, which regardless of intent, reinforced the very structures groups had self-organized to dismantle. Damn. And I read, these two obstacles, dependency and accommodation, did not destroy the U.S. mid-century freedom movement. Activists took down U.S. apartheid in its legal form. Freedom was not a gift, even if donations advanced the work for freedom. Our challenge is to understand these paradoxes in the early 21st century. At a time when the U.S.-led forces of empire, imprisonment, and inequality have even seized the word freedom, using the term lively resonant, Sorry, yes, to obscure the murderous effects of their global military, political, and economic crusade. Is there a non-profit industrial complex? How did it come into being? How is it powerful? In this essay, I will work through these questions rather generally. One might say theoretically, and even illustrate how the mid-20th century History is complicated in ways we can emanulate, if not duplicate. And finally, 
I will offer a few suggestions about how organizations might think about funders and about themselves. Others contributors to this volume will amplify specific instances and opportunities that current grassroots activists can use to strengthen and liberate our work, such that we are able to achieve non-reformist reform on the road to liberation. The Nonprofit Industrial Complex. During the past decade or so, radical thinkers have done a few turns on the term military-industrial complex. Mike Davis, Davis, prison industrial complex, was first to gain wide use, in part because of the groundbreaking 1998 conference and strategy session, Critical Resistance, Beyond the Prison Industrial Complex. It is useful to briefly consider that these industrial complexes consist of, and why they matter, by going back to President Dwight D. Eisenhower's 1961 farewell address to the nation, in which he introduced the concept military-industrial complex. He warned that the wide-scale and intricate connection between the military and warfare industry would determine the course of economic development and political decision-making for the country to the detriment of all other sectors and ideas. His critique seems radical when we remember he was a retired general, an anti-communist, and an unabashed advocate of capitalism. But he spoke against many powerful tides. As a matter of fact, the United States has never had an industrial policy divorced from its military advocates. With the technical ability to mass-produce many consumer products from guns to shoes was initially worked out under lucrative contracts to the U.S. military. However, in the build-up to World War II and the establishment of the Pentagon in the aftermath, the production, delivery, and training for the use of weapons of mass destruction reconfigured the U.S. intellectual and material landscape through the establishment of military bases, secure weapons research facilities, standing armed forces, military contractors, elected and appointed personnel, academic researchers, pundits, massive infrastructural development, and so forth. Many taken for granted technologies from the internet to tang brand powdered citrus drinks was developed under the aegis of national security. Their electoral and economic rays of the southern western Sorry, I'm going to go back on that one just a little bit. The electoral and economic rise of the southern western states ascended via the movement of people and money to those regions to carry out the permanent expansion and, peep this, perfection of killing people on an industrial scale. In other words, without the military-industrial complex, presidents, Nixon, Carter, Reagan, Bush 1, Clinton, and Bush 2 would never have achieved the White House. Damn. When activists started to use the term prison industrial complex, they intended to say as much about the intricate connections between reshaping the U.S. landscape as were suggested by the term military industrial complex. From tough on communism to tough on crime. The consistency between the two complexes lies in how broadly their reach has compromised all sorts of alternative features. The main point here is not that a few corporations call the shots. They don't. Rather, an elite realm of social policy and social investment is hostage to development and perfection of means of mass punishment. From prison to post-release conditions, implicating a wide range of people and places. Some critics of this analytic framework find it weak because the dollar amount that circulates through the prison industrial complex is not big enough to set a broader economic agenda. The criticism is wrong in two different ways. First, the point of the term prison industrial complex is to highlight the devastating effect of industrialized punishment that has hidden 
non-economic as well as measurable dollar costs to governments and households. And second, the term's purpose is to show how a social policy based in coercion and endless punishment destroys communities where prisoners come from and communities where prisons are built. The connection between prisons and military is both a not surprising material one. Some military firms have become vendors to prison systems, though most beneficiaries of prison and jail spending are individual wage earners, including retired military, and a not surprising ideological or cultural one. The broad normalization of the belief that the key to safety is aggression. The broad normalization of the belief that the key to safety is aggression. Wowzer. How does prison, excuse me, how does nonprofit industrial complex fit into the picture? Both the military and prison industrial complex have reshaped the national landscape and consequently shifted people's understanding of themselves in the world because norms change along with forms. Both the military and prison industrial complexes have led and followed other changes. Let's look at the state's role in these complexes. Importantly, part of the work that aggression agencies do is serve as the principal form of legitimacy for the intrigues of people who want to gain or keep state power these days. Why would they even need such cover? They and their ideologues have triumphed in promoting and imposing a view that certain capacities of the state are obstacles to development and thus should be shrunken or otherwise debilitated from playing a central role in everyday economic and social life. But their actions are contrary to their rhetoric. Strangely, then, we are faced with the absence of anti-state state actors, people and parties who gain state power by denouncing state power. Once they have achieved an elected or appointed position in government, they have to make what they do seem transparently legitimate. And if budgets are any indication... They spend a lot of money, even as they claim they're shrinking government. Prison, policing, courts, and the military enjoy such legitimacy. And nowadays, it seems to many observers as though there was never a time things were different. Wow. Thus, normalization slips into naturalization. And people imagine that locking folks in cages or bombing civilians or sending generation after generation off to kill somebody else's children is all part of human nature. But like human nature, everything has a history, and that anti-state state actors have followed a peculiar trajectory to their current locations. During the past 40 years or so, as the Sun Belt secured political domination over the rest of the U.S., capitalists of all kinds successfully gained relief paying heavily into the New Deal Great Society social wage via taxes on profits. The social wage is another name for tax receipts. At the same time, they have squeezed workers' pay packets, keeping individual wages for all U.S. workers pretty much flat since 1973. Hear that one more time. Keeping individual wages for all U.S. workers pretty much flat since 1973, excluding a blip in the late 1990s that did not trickle down to the lowest wage workers but raised higher level salaries. These capitalists and their apologists hid the double squeeze behind their effective rhetorical use of issues such as civil rights and affirmative action to invoke in the late 1960s and after the wages of whiteness, which any attentive person should have figured wouldn't pay any better than they did at the close of Reconstruction a hundred years earlier, while even white workers did not gain wage increases. The general Southern strategy paid off, bringing Nixon to the White House and bringing the government, the weak social welfare state, 
under suspicion from then until now the agenda for capitalists and relatively autonomous state actors has been to restructure state agencies that had been designed under their enormous emergency of the Great Depression, the New Deal, and its aftermath, loosely the Great Society, to promote the general welfare. Wow. Ruth Wilson Gilmore, man, just dropping a wonderful overview of history. And it gets even better, family. And I read, While neoconservatives and neoliberals diverge in their political ideals, they share certain convictions about the narrow legitimacy of the public sector and the conduct of everyday life. Despite the U.S. constitutional admonition, why is that word such a a trigger right now? (laughs) And I read, that the government should promote the general warfare, welfare. For them, wide-scale protections from calamity, <laughs> calamity and opportunities for advancement should not be a public good centrally organized to, to benefit everyone who is eligible. Anti-state state actors come from both camps and assist that the withdrawal of the state from certain areas of the social warfare provision will enhance rather than destroy the lives of those abandoned. Lapse New Deal Democrat Patrick Monahan called it benign neglect. Let's pause just for a second. If benign neglect, this, this is the first time that you've ever heard the phrase, the term benign neglect, you should take a minute and do a little Googles and read up on Patrick Monahan and benign neglect. It's worth it. And I read, while Reagan heir George H.W. Bush called it a thousand points of light, in this view, the first line of defense is the market, which solves most problems efficiently. And because the market is unfettered, fairness results from universal access to the same perfect information individuals, households, firms used to make self-interest decisions. And where the market fails, the voluntary nonprofit sector can pick up any stray pieces because the extent to which extra economic values, such as kindness and generosity or decency, come into play is the extent to which abandonment produces its own socially strengthening rewards. That's their ideal, right? A frightening willingness to engage in human sacrifice while calling it something else. In fact, for so large and varied a society as the United States, abandonment is far too complicated for any single ideologue, party, or election cycle to achieve. Experience shows abandonment takes a long time and produces new agencies and structures that replace, supplement, or even duplicate old institutions. Many factors contribute to this complexity. One is the large-scale public bureaucracies are hard to take down completely due to a combination of their initiative and inertia. Another is the fear that a sudden and complete suspension of certain kinds of social goods will provoke uprisings and other responses that, while ultimately controllable, come at a political cost. Here's where nonprofits enter the current political economy. And I want you to pay attention to that, right? The fear that a sudden and complete suspension of certain kinds of public goods will provoke uprisings and other responses. And you're going to hear more about that as we go along. And I read, as a third sector, neither state nor business, Nonprofits have existed in what's now the U.S. since the mid-17th century. When Colonial Harvard College was incorporated, today, there are nearly 2 million nonprofits in the U.S., including along with educational institutions, hospitals, schools, museums, operas, think tanks, foundations, and at the bottom, some grassroots organizations. Pause. I want to tell you. That two million and nonprofits in the U.S. right now, I'm, I'm sure that number is doubled. 
doubled, doubled. And I read, while the role of some of these organizations has not changed significantly, we have seen increased responsibility on the part of nonprofits to deliver direct services to those who are in need. And damn it, whenever there is a need in the community nowadays, fam, instead of a grassroots approach, there's a thing that trips where we decide that we want to start a nonprofit. Because in that nonprofit, there is there's money, right? There's guaranteed money that's going to take place, right? It's guaranteed money. We can write some grants and 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 you know and get all that. So again, the, the system that is breaking, it, that is broken, we depend on the system to fix what is broke. And it just turns into this horrible ass cycle. And I read, what also distinguishes the expansion of social service nonprofits is that increasingly their role is to take responsibilities for persons who are in the throes of abandonment rather than responsibility for a person's progressing toward full incorporation to the public body. Damn it. Jennifer Walsh developed the term shadow state to describe the contemporary rise of the voluntary sector that is involved in direct social services previously provided by wholly public New Deal Great Society agencies. And I want to read that part again. Jennifer Walsh developed the term shadow state to describe the contemporary rise of the voluntary sector that is involved in direct social services previously provided by wholly public New Deal Great Society agencies. Legislators and executive branches transform bureaucracies basically into policing bodies whose role became to oversee service provisions rather than to provide it themselves. Mm. This abandonment provoked a response among organizations that advocated on behalf of certain categories of state clients, right? The elderly, mothers, children, and so forth. It also encouraged the formation of new groups that, lacking an advocacy pass, were designed solely to get contracts and the jobs that came with them. To do business with the state, the organizations had to be firmly incorporated so they became nonprofits. Thus, for different reasons, nonprofits stepped up to fill a service void. Oh, that's good information. The expansion of the nonprofit activity structurally linked to public social services was not new. Nor could it be said that when public services was on the rise, the voluntary sector stayed home. To the contrary, for more than a hundred years, the relationship between public and voluntary had been a fairly tight one. But for Walsh, the shadow state's specific provenance is a resolution of two historical waves. The unprecedented expansion of government agencies and services from 1933 to 1973 followed by an equally wide-scale attempt to undo many of those programs at all levels, federal, state, county, local. Anti-state state actors welcome nonprofits under the rhetoric of efficacy and accountability. As a result of these and other pressures, nonprofits providing direct services have become highly professionalized by their relationship with the state. They have had to conform to public rules governing public money and have found that being agents in some ways trumps their principal desire to comfort and assist those abandoned to their care. They do not want to... Hold on, man. I had to pause there for a second because... It's about to get crazy. 
They do not want to lose the contracts to provide services because they truly care about clients who otherwise who would have no place to go. Thus, they have been sucked into the world of nonprofit providers. Damn it. L listen to that one more time, man. They have had to conform to public rules governing public money and have found that being agents in some ways trumps their principal desire to comfort and assist those abandoned to their care. They do not want to lose the contracts to provide services because they truly care about clients who otherwise would have nowhere to go. Thus, they have been sucked into a world of nonprofit providers. Sheesh. Which all... Damn. Which, like all worlds, has its own jargon limits determined by bid and budget cycles and legislative trends in both formal as well as informal hierarchies. And generally, the issues they are paid to address have been narrowed to program-specific categories and remedies, which make staff who often have a great understanding of the scale and scope of both individual clients and the needs of society at large become in their everyday practice technocrats through imposed specializations. The shadow state then is real but without significant political clout, forbidden by law to advocate for systemic change and bound by public rules and nonprofit charters to stick to his mission or go out of business Ooh, and suffer legal consequences as if it strays along the way. What? The, the dramatic proliferations of nonprofits in the 1980s. Jeez. The dramatic proliferation of nonprofits in the 1980s and after also produced a flurry of experts to advise on the creation and management of nonprofits and the relationship of public agencies to nonprofits, further professionalizing, <laughs> further professionalizing the sector. High-profile professors of management, such as Peter F. Drucker, wrote books on the topic and business schools develop entire curricula devoted to training the nonprofit manager. And guess what? That shit is still happening today. Schools across the country are offering nonprofit management. People are going to school to get degrees on how to work. Operate, fund, manage nonprofits. <laughs> Man. And I read As had long been the case, every kind of nonprofit, from the largest hospitals and higher education establishments to the smallest, sought out income sources other than public grants and contracts and organized philanthropy provided the promise of some independence from rule-laden and politically erratic public funding stream for those involved in social welfare activity. While we bear in mind that foundations are repositories of twice-stolen wealth, A, profit shelter from B, taxes, that can be retrieved by those who stole it at the opera or the museum, at Harvard, or a fine medical facility. It is also true that major foundations have put some resources into different kinds of community projects, and some program officers have brought to their portfolios profound critiques of the status quo and a sense of their own dollar-driven through board-limited creative potential. At the same time, the transfer to baby boomer generation, those born between 1946 and 1964, of what by the year 2035, here it is, here it is, 
by the year 2035 will be trillions of dollars of inherited wealth began to open the possibility for more varied types of funding schemes that nonprofits might turn to good use as some boomer heirs seek specifically to remedy the stark changes of described in these pages. Damn. Such initiatives and events encourage grassroots social justice organizations that otherwise might have continued their work below the Internal Revenue Service and f- formal funding radar to incorporate as nonprofits to make what they have consistently hoped to be great leaps t- forward in social justice, right? In other cases, Unincorporated grassroots groups receiving money under the shelter of existing nonprofits have been compelled to formalize their status because auditors have decided that the nonprofits who sponsor them have strayed outside the limits defined by their mission statements. The grassroots groups that have formerly joined the third sector are in the shadow of the shadow state. They are not directly service providers, but often work with the clients of such organizations as well as with the providers themselves. They generally are not recipients of public funds, although occasionally they get government contracts to do their work in jails or shelters or other institutions. They have detailed political programs and deep social economic critiques. Their leadership is well-educated in the ways of the world, whatever their level of formal schooling, and they try to pay some staff to promote and proliferate the organization's analysis and activity, even if most participants in the group are unpaid volunteers. The government is often the object of their advocacy and their antagonisms, whether because the anti-state state is the source of trouble or the locus for remedy. But the real focus of their energies is ordinary people who have the wish fervently to organize against their own abandonment. The nonprofit industrial complex describes all of the dense, intricate connections enumerated in the last few chapters and suggests, as is the case with the military industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, that something is amiss. What's wrong is not simply the economic dependencies fostered by these peculiar set of relationships and interests. More importantly, if forms do indeed shape norms, then what's wrong is what the work people set out to accomplish is vulnerable to becoming mission impossible under the sternly specific funding rubrics and the structural prohibitations that situate grassroots organizations both in the third sector's entanglements and in the shadow of the shadow state. In particularly, the modest amount of money that goes to grassroots groups is mostly restricted to projects rather than the core operations. So, Pause for a second. When you think of nonprofits and what nonprofits do, most employees at nonprofit agencies are working underneath a grant, right? A specific grant has been put in place to allow them to do the particular work that they're doing, right? So what happens is, like Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, in particularly, The modest amount of money that goes to grassroots is mostly restricted to projects rather than core operations. It doesn't go to the actual source or the root. It goes to the symptoms. And I read, and while the activists, right, which has nonprofits and foundations up the wazoo, regularly attacks the few dollars that go to anti-abandoned organization, it has loads of funds for core operations as of the end of the last century. The right had raised more than $1 billion to fund ideas. How core can you get? In other words, although we live in revolutionary times in which the entire landscape of social justice is or will shortly become like post-Katrina New Orleans, because it has been subject to same long-term abandonment of infrastructure and public goods, 
funders require grassroots organizations to act like secure suburbanites who have one last corner of the yard to plant. <laughs> what is to be done? Let's go back to the mid 20th century to think about what kinds of options people employ to make best use of the resources they had at hand. We saw that organized philanthropy caused problems, even if it also produced opportunities. The dual obstacles to liberation occasioned by the vexed relationship between funders and minority organizations, dependency and accommodation, did not destroy the anti-apartheid movement. I suggest that part of what helped secure a better outcome was that Reed and other critics pointed out what kinds of problems had materialized over the course of several decades and people put their minds and hands to solving the problems without abandoning themselves. Thus, the problems were not absolute impediments, especially insofar as recognition of them produced the possibility for some organizations and their funders to see each other differently and more usefully. More to the point, along the broadly interlocked social justice front that swept across the country in the mid-century, the committed people took the money and ran. I don't mean they lied or they stole, but rather they figured out how to foster their general activism from all kinds of resources, and they were too afraid of the consequences of stopping to cease what they started. They combined flexibility with opportunity in the best sense, working the ever-changing combination toward radical goals. And they did not fool themselves or others into pretending that winning a loss, sticking a plant on the mound of putrid earth in a poisoned, flooded field, was the moral material equivalent to winning a win. Here are snapshots of four cases that illustrate what I mean. These are not complete histories. Those stories have been well written by many and should be read by activists who want to learn from the past in order to remake the future. If people living under the most severe constraints, such as prisoners, can form study groups to learn about the world, then free world activists have no excuse for ignorance, nor should they rely on funder-designed workshops and training sessions to do what revolutionaries in all times have done on their own. Here we go. She outlines four cases that illustrates this. So let's start with case number one. 1949, Pacifist Anarcha Feminists Organizing in San Francisco Bay Area. Pacifica Radio formed when a small group of white activists tried to figure out how to use radio for radical ends. They were inspired by radio's potential rather than daunted by its limitations. Their challenge was to make broadcasts possible without advertising because in their view, Commercial sponsorship would always compromise independent expression, agreed. To evade capitalist control, they became a subscription or listener-sponsored organization that also, over time, combined foundation support with the dollars sent in each year from ordinary households. Without a single advertisement from that day until now, they have largely funded themselves from the bottom up. Pacifica became a foundation that developed a small national network and as it grew from the first station, its complexity made the straightforward goals of the funders founders rather a challenge to secure. In the late 1990s, the board, National Board tried to sell off the network's main asset, the 50,000-watt KPFA station, using the then-prevalent logic of nonprofit management to veil their effort to limit independent expressive art and journalism. The fact that such a board came to direct the foundation was an outcome of the pressures to professionalize that all nonprofits have encountered during the period under review. The gargantuan efforts needed to fight back against the board and re-democratize Pacifica's governance forced the organization to confront its internal racial, and gender hierarchies. Thus, a formidable means to amplify radical voices during the mid-century freedom movement developed from grassroots and success made it vulnerable to the structural constraints that squeeze even relatively mighty organizations that work today in the shadow of the shadow state. Case number two. 
1955, Urban Anti-Racist Activism in Jim Crow South. In the folktale version of the Montgomery bus boycott started when Rosa Parks was too tired to move to the back of the bus. But of course we know the boycott was not a spontaneous event. Parks acted as part of a large organization and also one of a serious refuseniks who sat in the front of segregated public from 1943 forward. How did a group of people concentrated in but not exclusively limited located in Montgomery, Alabama, managed to assault and scale apartheid's wall. The people who organized themselves had short, medium, and long-term goals to raise awareness, to involve the masses, and to desegregate the buses as means to undo other aspects of apartheid. Three key political formations were involved. Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, the Women's Political Council, the Montgomery Improvement Association. Each filled a different role, and all three were funded from the bottom up. The Women's Political Council, which comprised grassroots thinkers, including activists, scholars, crafted the plans and maintained a low profile during their execution. The Montgomery Improvement Association organized carpools that ensured boycott participants would be able to get to and fro work and not lose their jobs or neglect their households. The Dexter Avenue Church served as a staging ground and a place from which principal rhetoric of equality as fairness emerged in the form of thrilling speeches by young Martin Luther King Jr., the collaboration of these groups evaded the obstacle of accommodation and worked relatively independent of the major African-American organizations that were fighting for the same goal. And while the Dexter Avenue Church had no intention of disappearing, the other two organizations were flexible in their design and in their intended longevity with the outcome rather than the organization the purpose for their existence. 1956 Agricultural Labor Anti-Racist Activism A third example is from Agricultural Workers Organizer Committee, AWOC, a largely Filipino-American and Japanese-American grouping associated with the Congress of Industrial Organizations. The group began to organize in 1956 with the goal of reviving the type of radical agricultural organizing that had shut down harvest in California's Central Valley in 1933 and nearly succeeded a second time in 1938. They fought a hard battle. Both state and federal law forbade farm workers from organizing and guest worker program had undermined even the legal field organizing from 1942 onward. One of the techniques used by AWOC to get buy-in from workers was to require a large chunk of their meager wages to fund the organization's activities. In this view, when one owns something one cannot sell, such as membership in an organization, one is more likely to participate while AWOC did not secede, its funding structure was adapted by Cesar Chavez and Dolores Horta when they started the United Farm Workers. Their work began as the Brazario program, guest worker, ended. And while they still confronted legal sanctions against their work, they had the advantage of workers who, though migrant, were increasingly based in the region permanently. Their campaigns powerfully combined the language of civil rights with that of labor rights. And when the UFW reached beyond the fields for support, they fashioned a variety of ways that people throughout the U.S. and beyond could demonstrate solidarity, be it through writing checks, lobbying for wage and safety laws, forming coalitions in support of farm workers or refusing to eat grapes and other fruits of exploited labor. Example number four. 1962, the coffee top table politics. Many are looking for an organizational structure and a resource capable capability that will somehow be a privilege to co-optation. And man, we still looking for that shit today, right? An organizational structure and a resource capability that will somehow be privilege to co-optation, but it is impossible to create a model that the other side cannot figure out. For example. 
Imagine neighborhoods in which women come to have political understanding of themselves in the world. They go to their neighbors and say, hey, read this. It changed my life. I'll babysit your kids while you do. In this appealing model, the written work circulated while women care for each other's children and form a cooperative system which does not have paid staff. Because of what they have learned, they go on to run for school board and lobby legislators and ultimately exercise huge impacts on local, state, and national elections. Sounds like a great model, right? Yes, it does. It's also the origin of the new right in California. This is the movement that attempted to put Barry Goldwater in the White House, that put Ronald Reagan in the governor's mansion, Richard Nixon in the White House, and Ronald Reagan in the White House. This is the movement that has done the grassroots work that created the need for the shadow state to rise. If contemporary grassroots organizers are looking for a pure form of doing things, they should stop. There is no organizational structure that the right cannot use for its own purposes. And further, the example of the new right points out a weakness in contemporary social theory that suggests the realm of social society which neither market nor state is the place where liberatory politics necessarily unfold. Michael Mann shows how quite the opposite happened in the Nazi takeover of Germany, arguing that a dense civil society formed crucial infrastructure for priority. I argued earlier that forms create norms, and it might appear that this last section is contradictory. Yes and no. Form does not mean blueprint, but rather the lived relations and imaginative possibilities emanating from those relationships. In a sense, form is resolutely geographically concept because it is about making pathways and places rather than searching endlessly for perfect method mode. This last section right here is going to be a banger. And I read, Grassroots nonprofits should uniformly encourage funders to move away from project-driven portfolios. If the results enjoyed by the activist right are any indication, one billion for ideas would go a long way toward regenerating the devastating landscape of social justice. Funders who want to return their inherited wealth to the communities who produced it should reflect on whether they are building glorious edifices that in the excuse me, that in the end perpetuate inequality. Reed pointed out the mismatch between the gleaming physical plant segregated colleges and universities built with the foundation support and the weak curricula designed to produce a professional managerial class whose life work would be to keep other people in check. Finally, grassroots organizations that labor in the shadow of the shadow state should consider this, that the purpose of the work is to gain liberation not to guarantee the organization's longevity. Okay, hold on. Hold on. I need to make sure I memorize that. Grassroots organizations that labor in the shadow of the shadow state should consider this. The purpose of the work is to gain liberation, not to gain, not to guarantee the organization's longevity. In the short term, it seems the work and the organizations are an identity. The staff and the pamphlets and the projects and ideas gain some traction on the slippery ground because they have a bit of weight. That's true. But it is also the case that when it comes to building social movements, organizations are only as good as the united fronts they bring into being. Lately, funders have been very excited about the possibility of groups aligning with unlikely allies. But to create a powerful front, a front with the capacity to change the landscape, it seems that connecting with likely allies will be a better use of time and trouble. Remembering that likely allies 
have all become constricted by mission statements and hostile laws to think in silos rather than expansively grassroots organizations can be the voices of history and the future to assemble the desperate and sometimes desperate nonprofits who labor in the shadow of the shadow state. Jeez. Oh, man. Ruth Wilson Gilmore. In the shadow of the shadow state. This is your boy Elgin Bailey reading The Revolution Will Not Be Funded Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. This has been a powerful episode with lots and lots to unpack. Lots and lots to unpack. And I thank you guys for tuning in. I thank you for spending time with me, man. I encourage you a couple things, right? I encourage you, one, to share this episode with folks who are working in nonprofits. Uh, cultivate conversations around the information that is being shared in these. I ask you that you would take a moment and share, like, subscribe, follow, and consider donating and becoming one of the Patreon members for the Page Turners. And I'm asking you because I am looking to continue to build independent black media spaces to continue to share this useful information. And I thank you guys for tuning in. I thank you for being a part of the Page Turners family. And always, man, and always, always, always study and fight. Till next time.